Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. We're living in a digital age, curating our own digital lives. And while it has many benefits, it can also make us vulnerable to foreign states, threatening our democracy. I'm joined today by Associate Professor Tim Legrand from the University of Adelaide's Department of Politics and International Relations. He's an expert in global blacklisting and sanctions, cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, terrorism, political violence and political exclusion. So Tim, that sounds like you've got a lot on your plate and you know about a lot of different topics. Uh, let's start with cybersecurity. Can you explain to us what that actually means or what it looks like for the everyday Australian? Sure. Um, so cybersecurity refers to generally keeping ourselves our data, our networks, and our computers safe from bad guys online. So okay. out there, we've got a lot of malicious actors and um, countries and groups all seeking to get some sort of commercial advantage or political advantage in cyberspace. And they can use a variety of means to, to extract that sort of advantage from, from your devices, from the data that you have, or from networks that you operate on, and so on. Right, okay. So that has quite a bit to do with information warfare, doesn't it? That's right. Can you describe that link? Yeah. So we live in this, an age where our lives, the public lives, the government's operations, um, commercial operations, society and the economy are becoming increasingly digitised. So we've had, what, 20, 30 years in which this process of becoming a digital society has ramped up and become mm -hmm. amplified. And as that has become more kind of active, that our, our lives and our society has become dependent. We say, you know, there's right. your, your social life, my social mm -hmm. life, but my banking, um, the way you kind of get to work, it's increasingly kind of digital systems are running the show. Mm -hmm. And that has a load of benefits, you know, so we, there's a lot of efficiencies that we've, we can derive from this new digital age. But one of the vulnerabilities that comes with that is that, um, goes to uh, the capacity that states can now use that reliance that we have on digital processes against us. Mm -hmm. And some vulnerabilities that our society has, mm -hmm. our state has, because of our reliance on digital systems. And so information warfare refers to the, the, the ways in which malicious states out there can use our reliance on digital technologies against us for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. So would you say we're in the midst of that warfare right now? We're probably at the beginning of it. Right, okay. So, so it's only going to get more complicated. It's only going to get bigger, more complex, and potentially more damaging mm -hmm. as, as we go on, or well, depending on how we respond. Mm -hmm. um, governments are increasingly aware of this vulnerability. So right. as we ourselves develop better defensive technologies to these problems, we're also, Australia, the Australian government is also developing its own offensive technologies to do the same to other mm -hmm. countries. Mm -hmm. you know, so hence the, the notion of warfare, you know, wars are fought between countries. Yeah. And so it's in this space that we're seeing increasingly this, this back and forth of new technologies being created to, to, as offensive technologies. Yeah. And then we're also seeing defensive technologies being developed to counter those. Right. So do you think it's possible that we're going to all need to go back to the paper lifestyle soon? <laughs> oh, it was a, definitely a simpler time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it seems <laughs> Where we just like it. read a newspeper in black and white yeah. and that couldn't change before yeah. our eyes and it was less likely to be manipulated. Yeah, all and, the accounts on paper and all our information. It's <laughs> well, that, messy right. though. <laughs> it, well, those were 
so it said, you know, a less efficient time, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. where things were, you know, where, where processes were administered, to, were administered slower and perhaps required more manpower or woman power to kind of, you know, administer and keep the society and the economy going. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a lot of benefits that have come with this digital age. You yeah, know? We're more totally. connected than ever. Mm -hmm. We're globally connected. We've got our links with our family, our friends overseas. You know, my family are in the UK. Yeah. So the digital age has benefited me because I can now, you know, FaceTime them. I can I can use Facebook to keep up with what's going on with my family. Yeah. There's a whole range of benefits that go with this digital age, but there's a trade-off. Of and course. there's, you know, some potential risks that go with it. Yeah. So can you describe your research into this area? Yeah, so I work here at the University of Adelaide with uh, Dr. Melissa Ellen Dowling. And together, she and I have been doing some research on the vulnerabilities of what we call digital democracy. Right. So digital democracy refers basically to the way in which the, this, the, us, the public, engage with our representatives in Canberra and at the state level. Okay. So how our government operates on our behalf is increasingly becoming digital. Indeed, how we... Um, how we elect or understand the, the, the voting environment is increasingly digital. So political campaigns are increasingly run through social media and through the popular media, uh, orthodox media as well, of course. The way in which government reaches out to us and um, delivers our services. Mm -hmm. you know, the, our, um, our driving license here in South Australia, for example, is now a digital license where you can mm -hmm. get it as a digital app yeah. on your phone. So all these services, the way government does things for us is increasingly digital. And so democracy now is taking on this new electronic form. Okay. You know, the way government tells us what's going on and the way we say, yep, government, you're doing a good job. We'll vote for you again. Or indeed, we say, government, we think you're doing a bad job because we've seen on our social media feeds, you know, different stories about how you've perhaps been rorting the system or there's corruption. Mm -hmm. so we'll vote against you. Yeah. So the, the lifeblood of democracy, where once was perhaps much more about face-to-face -face conversations, and perhaps even TV and radio, it's now increasingly um, what we call disaggregated. There's multiple channels of information um, available to us through social media that allows us to form different sorts of views mm. on politics of today. Right. So I, I can well, I know that a huge part of democracy is the ability for each individual in our country to form autonomous decisions about who they want in power and who they want re representing them. And um, what does this in digital information and the influence of media mm. have on our ability to make those informed but personal decisions? Well, this, this goes to this question of, you know, the, the threats, what we see as the threats to digital democracy. And you're right, of course, you know, that democracy relies on an informed citizenry. Mm -hmm. Once you turn the, age of, turn the age of 18 in Australia, you're entitled, you're expected to vote. And to vote means to express a preference at the ballot box. And Australia was an innovator of the secret ballot, which is now spread worldwide. And in many ways, you know, we can claim to be one of the great contributors to democratic processes. And so delivering a vote means that we, an informed vote means that we've arrived at our own judgments of the candidates or political party that we think best represents our personal interests. That's democracy. Now, in a digital age, the amount of information that floods into our consciousness on a, on a day-to-day basis is, is far in excess of how it used to be. And probably our subconscious. And indeed our subconscious. And we should definitely come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> so our, 
for being political means under, well, you know, our mobile phones are very political devices. Mm-hmm. You know, our, the, the, the social media streams that we that we buy into, like Instagram or or Twitter or Facebook and others. You know, they are they're not just a way in which we connect to other people. It's, all, it's a way in which we connect to politics, and those those new dynamics now offer up a new way in which our political decision making, our consciousness, our vote can be shaped can be manipulated mm-hmm. by people who perhaps have ulterior interests at heart. Mm-hmm. Would you say that those people are um, in the political circles themselves or even external to that? Very much. So domestically, all political parties are reaching out uh, through digital media. Mm-hmm. And that's legitimate to the extent that it's transparent, that we yeah. can see that they're doing it. You know, why not? Send me an advert to my onto my Facebook feed to tell me your policies. If you're yeah. the Labour Party or the Liberal Party, it's just a form of communication. Yeah. It's a form of legitimate communication to the extent that we can see that they're doing it. Now, this whole subconscious thing is interesting because there's also a, a growing ecosystem of of agencies and interests out there that that covertly try and manipulate our political preferences mm-hmm. by their use of online media and online advertising, but also through understanding what it is that makes you and I tick. Mm-hmm. They collate, you know, Facebook is the great example of this. You know. Their business model is essentially to get as much detailed information on its users as possible, from their, 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 their age, their gender, mm-hmm. where they live, where they work, their education, what their, their purchasing uh, preferences are their their sexuality, their, their gender identity, their class, mm. um, the kind of the colour of the clothes that they wear, the places that they go at, at night, where they go shopping during the day, everything. A totality of the information that makes up you mm-hmm. is sucked into social media, and they use that as a means to create very detailed profiles, mm-hmm. and they sell those profiles to advertisers. So, advertisers see detailed information on individuals as, as a goldmine for their mm-hmm. advertising. The better they know their customer, the more effectively they can sell their, their products. So, you know, when we're on Facebook or on Twitter or wherever, that data, we're, we're consuming our... What we are doing is we're social, we're, we're social beings, so mm-hmm. we're consuming social information. But the platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they are using our that, that, that information to create better profiles to sell to their customers. And their Mm. customers are advertisers. Mm -hmm. We are the producers. Okay. Coming back to that political conversation, um, obviously, especially in recent times, it's been quite obvious that places like social media and general media have been places that have uh, inspired a lot of divide between people, Mm. um, which has in some cases been quite dangerous. Mm. Would you say that that's something we need to be really aware of? Very much, yeah. So well, the effect I think that you're referring to is that of social media bubbles. Right, yeah. But we tend to, um, you know, when we're on um, Twitter or Instagram, we, we tend to affiliate ourselves and follow people who represent our views mm-hmm. or kind of represent something like an ideal sort of life that we like, you know. Yeah. That's what you do. You know, influences. You, and yeah, influences. <laughs> exactly. You're like, hey, that's the sort of lifestyle that I like to. And they... And we follow those, and we, we and we populate our, what we you might say, curate our social media world. You know, we we make choices about what we see according to what we want to see. Mm-hmm. Now, 
that's a human instinct, isn't it? We surround ourselves with friends who are like-minded. Mm. You know, it validates get. your own experience as it well. Precisely. It validates our own experience. Mm. But the, the, the effect of that is to create bubbles. Mm. Echo chambers, as me and my friends call it. <laughs> Indeed. Echo chambers is a brilliant word. So it's the idea that you only hear the views that reflect the views that you've already selected in the people that you like. Right. You never hear antagonist views or alternative views. Mm. And so the effect is that you rarely see meaningful debates between people in online circles mm -hmm. because they think, well, the world that I know is surrounded by all these people who've got very sensible ideas mm. about the world. And I don't understand what it is to have a different viewpoint in yeah. politics. And that creates what we call polarisation. Yeah. Potentially a society in which people move away from each other's, in, move away from engaging with one another and hold polarising views. And they're self-affirming as well because you're surrounded with people who think like you and talk like you and look like you. Yeah. And so why wouldn't that world be the right world for you to choose? And it means that you generally don't, don't have as much empathetic understanding of those who have alternative life views or life experiences or, or politics. Right. It also means you can't really safely uh, voice a different opinion. I'm just thinking about situations in which uh, perhaps there's been a photo or a post and, and I may have a different view mm. to what that's portraying, but I know that everyone who follows that person is within that echo chamber and then it would just be me against a whole realm of people. Well, that's why there's a, a real kind of problem with, with online bullying. And yeah. I mean, that would invite a, a pile on on Twitter or on, yeah. on Facebook and, you know, people just jump on you and exactly. castigate you. And yeah. there's a mental health issue there as well. Yeah. Certainly. Right. Okay, so that's a, a lot of information, digital <laughs> information. Um, how did you personally uh, develop a passion in this area? Um, well, I, in my background, I mean, I did a PhD mm -hmm. um, in the UK in, in politics and I came to Australia and worked at a centre of excellence in policing and security. And uh, part of that um, was looking at critical infrastructure mm -hmm. and how critical infrastructure has increasingly become digital and exposed to you know, the, the risks of the, of the digital world, especially from other states. Right. Um, arriving here... At Adelaide, that, that interest in how society was structured digitally and, it, and became and has invited new sorts of vulnerabilities sort of evolved into an interest mm -hmm. into the threats that we see to digital democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and so myself and my research partner, uh, Dr. Dowling, we've engaged with a whole range of external um, bodies, um, the Cybersecurity um, CRC, the Cooperative Research Centre, and the Department of Defence mm -hmm. and Department of Home Affairs are all interested in how, you know, our digital democracy has become, not only just become a thing you know, that mm. we engage with, but also has become a vulnerable oh, thing. Oh, yeah, totally. And so, and so our interest, my interest kind of evolved into this question of, well, how is it that um, foreign states or or non-Australian entities can use our, our dependence on digital processes against us. Mm -hmm. All these preferences I've just articulated, mm -hmm. all this, the, the way in which our social worlds are vulnerable to, um, well, are basically being identified and categorised yeah. for ad advertisers, yeah. but also then in turn vulnerable to being used, that information is then vulnerable to being used against us mm. to manipulate our preferences. Mm -hmm. So it's been kind of like a, a, a movement from the, the fundamental digital processes of critical infrastructure, 
roads, um, telecommunications, banking, uh, our food security, and so on, into societal, a holistic view of how society itself is digital and vulnerable because of that digital, digital aspect. Yeah, right. And so what brought you to, um, to Australia to do that as opposed to staying in the UK? Uh, well, it's the position that I acquired oh, at right. uh, is Griffith University mm-hmm. at the Centre of Excellence in Policing Security and they advertised a position and I was lucky enough to secure it. Oh, brilliant. How do you like Australia? That's fantastic. I'm now Australian. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a recent Australian, so yeah. I can now refer to the we and the us, you know. Yeah, <laughs> good, yeah, totally. Democracy, sausage and all that. <laughs> yeah, it's a brilliant country. Yeah, what was the first thing you noticed that was different moving here? Um... The tea is awful. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've heard. I was actually born in the UK as well. Oh, well, but so we can both. Talk about tea together. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. indeed. <laughs> yeah. So um, it would be amazing to hear your thoughts on how we as individuals can respond to all of this information. And how do you think sure. we should be aware and then act in response? Yeah, I, there's a lot of sophisticated ways in which marketing uh, operates today and so you know in the social world we're not often aware of how firstly how our data is being used to to profile us but then we're less even less aware of actually how commercial entities use that data to advertise back to us mm-hmm. now my concern isn't so much as a you know as a, a security specialist my concern is you know the the integrity of Australia's democracy mm. so i'm not so concerned with how the advertising for commercial benefit happens, but I'm concerned with how the manipulation of our digital environment occurs as, and harms our democratic environment. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, specifically, we know that there's companies out there um, such as Cambridge Analytica. Mm. Now, that's now a defunct company. What they did and what they had done for the past 10, 15 years is use pro, um, social media profiles as a means to develop very sophisticated political campaigns all over mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. um, in Trinidad, Tobago, um, in, or, and across the Caribbean, in Nigeria, in, in Kenya, in North America, in the United States, in, in the UK during the Brexit campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these companies use our social media data in a way to develop political messaging which tells you what your preferences should be. Mm-hmm. And manipulates your environment to make you think that certain things um, are perhaps more of a problem than they really are. Now, right. I'll, I'll take an example. So in, I think it's 2015, in Nigeria, there was an election, a presidential election, and the incumbent, Jonathan Goodluck, was facing off against a, um, a, a rival candidate mm-hmm. who was Muslim. Mm-hmm. And Cambridge Analytica were engaged by the Nigerian, by, by Jonathan Goodluck to, to run a campaign, run his digital campaign. And they ran a very sophisticated and malicious campaign against the, the Muslim candidate, um, spreading, the, spreading the, the, the fake news, as it yeah. turned out to be, that, that this Muslim candidate was endorsing Sharia law and was essentially on the side of the extreme um, So they're inciting Islamists. fear and... So, uh, yeah. Cynically inciting fear, and and Jonathan Goodluck won the election. Mm-hmm. But the, the the use of that data was you know, is cynical and was a was a clear manipulation of yeah. the 
of how people thought that their their interests would be best represented. So the Christian um, candidates on the one hand versus the Muslim candidate on the other, mm. and so and they've done this all over the world. And they're now they're now defunct because of yeah. their um, a lot of their, their operations were illegal and mm. they're found to be in breach of all sorts of um, regulations. Now we'd be foolish to think that that's not happening now and today. Yeah. That's our data, your data and my data on social media is being used in, it's available in more fine grained detail than ever before. Mm -hmm. And even to the extent they know what our preferences are online, what, where we live and where we go, where we socialize. And so I would urge that anyone who is of a digital generation, you know, anyone who's I mean, I'm, I'm one of the older, oldest millennials. Yeah? I'm an <laughs> 80s child. And, you know, the new generations who are basically digital natives mm. can't escape this. Mm. You've been profiled and your mm -hmm. profiles are being sold everywhere. And it's important for us to develop critical faculties when it comes to the information that's being presented to us yeah. in our social media bubbles mm. or, our, or our echo chambers, mm. as you put it. Being aware that the world is a very diverse place mm -hmm not holding to firm opinions. I think the, the mark of someone who's a mature and sophisticated thinker is someone who's open to changing their mind mm. and having a changeable mind, but being critical of the information that's been given to you. Mm. I mean, here at the university, I teach all my students to have, you know, to critically engage with information, no matter where it comes from on the political spectrum, yeah. and to not be certain of your views. I mean, there's an importance to be to having some fundaments about you know, about racial equality your and, values, yeah. and your values and you know and understanding kind of what is good and what sort of things that you want to see in the world mm -hmm. but also being amenable to other people's opinions yeah. and not necessarily buying into what you see online because what is given to you online is highly tailored to be convincing to you yeah. Especially by sophisticated sort of corporate mm. entities, but also in in, mm. in politics as well. So we see a whole range of new news stories from alternate news agencies, you know, the non-Channel Nine or ABC sources. But you know, kind yeah. of disaggregated social media landscape means that there's a whole range of different perspectives on the world that can be presented to us. And I'd urge everybody to be cynical yeah. and not take everything on face value, but to yeah. ask yourself the question at all costs, who is telling me this and why are they telling me this story? Why are they trying to depict or convince me of a certain perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, asking why, such a simple question, is so helpful. It's a powerful question. It to is. Ask why. And I mean, all of this data gathering, I find it quite helpful when I'm looking for the winter's next puffer jacket. <laughs> but right. certainly when you're making big decisions and, and your, your voice and your vote matters, mm you do need to be really aware of the messaging that's that's being forced upon you sometimes. I couldn't agree more. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure that uh, our listeners on the Discovery Pod will have learnt just as much as I did today. Uh, I'm very grateful for your hard work and I feel a lot more confident that there are people um, who are passionate about, um, about guiding our leaders and our government uh, to know that this is a very real issue. So thank you very much. Thank you, Isabel. Thanks for listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss endometriosis and PCOS.